0: Here we're starting here with the Mishnah on the top of Kufiud Aleph. Aleph. The Mishnah says, bishinav, Someone who is having toothaches. Person shouldn't swallow vinegar to cure as a cure for the toothache. Person can use vinegar as a dip and dip his bread into the vinegar and then eat it normally. Because that's, again, machal b'riim. That's what normal people would do. You know, even though here he intends to do it for his toothache, nevertheless he's acting or exhibiting behavior that other people would have. And it's not obvious that he's doing it simply for the toothache. If that works, then great. Someone's having issues with his loins. One cannot put on their wine or vinegar to shaman, you could put on oil, below shaman but not rose oil. So again, things that are considered to be normal one can do because they do not indicate any medicinal utilization of these items. Yain and to put wine or vinegar in that area would be considered unusual and would be only done for medicinal purposes, and therefore it would be a surah and shavat. To put shaman, that's a normal thing to do, and therefore it's mutar. Shemin Vered, rose oil, was not used except for the very wealthy, or those of the aristocracy. So to put it on, again, would have been something that would be considered unusual. The name of the al princes, <inaudible> they used to put this rose oil on their wounds. <inaudible> because that's what they do during the weekdays. They're not doing anything different on Shabbat than they would do on a weekday. And because of that, that's considered to be normal behavior. It's not necessarily associated with medicinal outcomes. Shimon Omer, kol Yisrael, b'nei Shimon believes that all Jews are like princes. Since all Jews are like princes, even though they don't normally on a weekday use this rose oil, they will be entitled to use it on Shabbat if it comes about that they need to use it. And we won't say, oh, this is unusual. This is something that is considered to be medicinal in nature, and not normal in nature. Rami le revachah arika, revachah the long one, duhu Ravacha bar papa, Rabbi abu atnan. We have our Mishnah, he choshesh bishina, v'lyigameh b'en at a chometz, remember, the chometz malei lishinaim. To answer me this, that vinegar is good for a toothache. Vahaktiv. Don't we have a pasuk in Mishle that says, kechometz lishinaim, Ashan le'inaim. It's talking about something that is negative in nature. And when it says neg- the negativity that it associates with it is like vinegar to your teeth and like smoke to your eyes. So you know, Just like smoke to your eyes is not something that you would consider pleasant or curative. So too, why would you consider this vinegar to be something positive for the teeth? When the puzzle is clearly saying that it is negative. Lokasha ha de peri ha-bichalot. Pent why you have this vinegar. There are two ways that the Gemara is suggesting here that you can end up with this vinegar. You can have vinegar because you had wine that went bad, wine that turned into vinegar. The other possibility is you have unripe grapes. Unripe grapes that were squeezed into wine, but they'll never really ferment or become wine because of the nature of those grapes being unripe. That's the cua de peri, the acidity of the grapes is what creates that type of vinegar. So that would be something that is negative as opposed to the Chala, the regular vinegar, that would be something that is uh, positive. Vibaitema, Hava, In both cases, we're talking about regular vinegar. Ha, the ikamaka, Maka. Ha, the lekamaka. Maka. That there is a difference whether he has an injury or doesn't have an injury. Ika Maka, if you have an injury or problem with the gums in the teeth, then Masi, then it's curative. Then it's helpful to have the vinegar in there. Leka if you do not have any injury or any wound on the gums, then mirafe it loosens the gums. As Rashi says, pim So the gum base, which in which the teeth sit, the jar in which the teeth sit, they start to loosen up with the utilization of this vinegar. So if you have an issue in the mouth, then the vinegar is efficacious, it's helpful to have it. If you don't have an issue, then the properties of it loosening up the gums and the teeth is something that is negative, and that's what the Pasuk was speaking about. Where it says, our Mishnah says, that you shouldn't swallow the chomets. But we have a Braita that says, you can't swallow the vinegar and then spit it out. You can take it in and then swallow it. And then it won't be a problem. Our Mishnah is talking about a case where he swashes around the vinegar, and then he spits it back out. And then it'll accord with the Brita, because the Brita says that's problematic, and our Mishnah is saying the same thing. That if you wash around, rinse your mouth with the vinegar, and then spit it back out, you gargle with the vinegar and spit it back out, that would be problematic. That's what the Brita says explicitly, and that's what is meant by our Mishnah here. That's the way Abai explains it. Rav Amar, Afilu tema Megamea, even in a case where he rinses out, swallows, gargles, and then spits, and then swallows it afterwards, even in that case, there could be a problem. Depends where he is in the meal. If he's before the point of the meal where they normally dipped, then it's not a problem because his interaction with the vinegar would be normal. On the other hand, if it's after he's already dipped in the meal, then he would have a problem. Because after the dipping, it's already obvious, the only reason he's bringing the vinegar back is for its curative properties for medicinal reasons, not because it's, quote-unquote, part of the meal, part of his normal course of eating. And that would be indicative of him using it for medicinal reasons. And that would be problematic on Shabbat. So that's what he'll suggest here. Our mission is a case where he's interacting with the vinegar after, in the meal, he would have been in the normal process of dipping. And that's why it's a sewer. The bright is talking about a case where it's prior to that point in time. and Therefore, if he put it in his mouth and then swallowed it, it would be fine. Mar says, wait a minute, wait a minute, if it's mutar before you get to the point of the meal where you're dipping, then it certainly should be mutar afterwards. the Because we already have heard this principle from Ravah. He has this principle called since something is true, something else must be true. Now here on Shabbat, as Rashi points out, to her, points out here, that ain't the chas the Shabbat, mutar the We don't have things that are mutar for a part of Shabbat and then an asur for a part of Shabbat. Either something is mutar on Shabbat or something is asur on Shabbat. We don't have things cut off in the middle of Shabbat, change status in the middle of Shabbat. That doesn't happen. So why <coughs> over here would Rabbah say that it's mutar before that point in the meal and asur after that point in the meal? And we also know that Rav says this in another context, which is, Rav, There's nothing that would be mutar on Shabbat, and yet on Yom Kippur would be asur. Shabbat is a higher level of Kedushah than Yom HaKippurim. We know that because the punishment for the violation of Shabbat is Skila, Whereas the punishment for the violation of Yom HaKippurim is Kareit. So Shabbat has both Karet and skilah, whereas Yom Kippurim only has Karet. So we know that Shabbat is on a higher level in terms of the Kedushah. So his point is that it can't be that you could do something on Shabbat that would then be Asur on Yom HaKippurim. It's inconsistent that you could have something that's more holy and then have something be Mutar and then on Yom Kippur have something that's Asur. Ho, to be Shabbat Shari, Yom HaKippurim, not be Shari, since it's Mutar on Shabbat, it must be Mutar on Yom HaKippurim where it says, Hader be'i rova me'ach. Rava reversed his position. The question is, which one did he say first of these two opinions? He has an opinion here about our Mishnah, and he has an opinion in regards to the interaction between Shabbat and Yom HaKippurim. So now the Gemara says, which one did he say first, and which one is a reversal of the other opinion? So right now the Gemara says, well, it must be that he reversed his position with regards to our Gemara over here, because of what we find in the other Gemara. How do you know that our statement was made first, and then the statement by Yom Kippurim and Shabbat is a reversal of that opinion? Maybe he made the statement over there by Shabbat and Yom Kippurim first, and his statement here is a, and his statement over here is a reversal of that position. How do you know which way to go? How do you know which one's first and which one's the reversal of the opinion? Where it says Lo Datcho, you wouldn't have thought that way. Titanyo Kol Chayvei Tvilot Tovlim ketarkan Ben Betishah Ben Biyom HaKipurim. <laughs> so we have a statement with regards to Tvila on Yom HaKipurim and Tvila on Tisha B'av that a person who has to go to the mikveh on these days, they can go to the mikveh without any without any problem, without any issue despite the fact that on Yom Kippur and despite the fact that on Tisha B'Av there's an Isor Rechitzah. There's an isur to bathe on those days. Despite the fact that there's an isur to bathe on those days, nevertheless, we say that it is Mutar it, uh, rather smell, rather smell Ah, So, yeah, Tosafot discusses what exactly the uh, scenario is over here. Why a person is allowed to go. Whether it's regular tefillah, which is only in a case, according to the one who says, tefillah bismana mitzvah. First, according to the one who says, that going to the mikveh on time, is a mitzvah, and therefore you wouldn't want to give up, the opportunity to go to the mikveh on time, because that's a mitzvah. If tefillah bismana is not a mitzvah, then why not just wait till, Motzei Yom and why not wait, till after Tisha B'Av. So he speaks about this, and assumes that, uh, it has to be, according to the one who says that, Tefillah b'zmana mitzvah. uh, Or according to those that require tzvila at a very specific time, that would require you to go at that time. Otherwise, why not postpone it? Why not wait till afterwards? It does bring a dissenting opinion to this. We know there's an Atano, Rabbi Hanina Skanakohanim, who says, K'dai beit alukeinu. Allah alav tzvila achat b'shana. The the beit mikdash is worth giving up one tzvila Bizmana once a year. In Tisha B'av to show that it's a different day, and we give up the mitzvah to show our mourning, our velut over the the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash. And the he says that the Yushami says Hilchotel Kavate. The is like him in this instance. Now, in with regards to Tvilah and, and Tishah B'av and Yom Kippurim, the basic principle that uh, we utilize in these cases with regards to uh, Tishah B'av and Yom Kippurim is that. The rechitzah, there's a surah, on those days is a rechitzah of Hana'ah. It's a, hana'a. it's a that is beneficial of pleasure. So it's, for instance, if someone walks and gets muddy, gets their feet full of mud on Yom HaKippurim, then they're allowed to wash off their feet to get remove the mud from their feet. They're not washing for purposes of Hana'ah, pleasure, or bathing for pleasure, they're just doing it to remove the dirt that is on their feet. That type of rechitzah is permitted on Yom HaKippurim. That's why, for instance, if someone comes into, gets meluch they change a diaper, they do something on Yom Kippurim that gets them dirty, we don't say don't wash. You can wash, because there you can remove what's on there. There's a removal of dirt, it's considered to be fine on those days. So here you'd also have to talk about a tevilah, in the context of tevilah, that it should not be a tvi'lo of hanah, that person can't go in there to bathe, they're going for pleasure, but rather they go in to simply accomplish the mitzvah of tvilah to remove the tumah from them, and not engage in something that would be pleasurable in nature. And that type of v'chitzah is mutar, in An Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av. In general, we wouldn't allow that to happen because we would say that we're afraid that the person is going to do it for pleasure, for hana. So we prevent them from doing that. If there are mitigating factors, like here, where it's a tvilah shel mitzvah, there's a reason to go in, the mikvan, Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av, We'll say, "Okay, go ahead with those qualifications associated with them." But in general, we wouldn't tell someone who goes to the mikveh uh, before davening or so on and so forth that but they should go on the morning of Yom Kippurim necessarily, because in those instances, it's not. We try to keep things objective and not subjective, and to allow those people the opportunity to make a decision whether it's pleasurable, or not pleasurable. We try to avoid those types of situations on Yom Kippurim, on Tishabab, in any type of halachic realm. And despite the fact that we... So what we see from here is that Rava was matter Tzvil on Yom Kippurim. Even though it's obvious if you're going to the Mikvah on Yom Kippur, you're not going to wash yourself or bathe. You're going simply to be Mitaher yourself. When it comes to Shabbat, we know that a person can go into the Mikvah on Shabbat. Well, maybe there it's Mittakin Gavro. person is becoming tor from the Tumah that they had. How come it's permissible? We say, well, because on Shabbat it's permissible because... If a person sees you going into the mikveh, you could be going into the mikveh to bathe, going into the mikveh to become Torah. It's unclear why you're in the mikveh. Right? This is at a time when it was still mutar to go into the mikveh for those reasons necessarily or when they didn't have a gzera against it. But since it is mutar birichitza, therefore we say, okay, we don't know why the person's in the mikveh. So it's not obvious or mukrach that he's doing it at the ta'ara. The Problem is when you come to Yom Kippurim, you can't say the same thing. You say by Shabbat. By Yom Kippur, you can't say, oh, maybe he's in the Mikveh because he wants to bathe. If he's in the Mikveh because he wants to bathe, he's violating Yom Kippurim So the only reason somebody will be in Mikveh on Yom Kippurim is because they're becoming Torah. They're being, taking themselves from tuma to Tahara. If that's the case, then why are you allowed to go to the Mikveh on Yom Kippurim It's obvious why you're in the Mikveh. You're attacking Gavra. You're becoming Torah. The answer is because it's Mutan Shabbat. It's mutar on Yom HaKippurim. Just like by Shabbat we say it's is fine, so to by Yom HaKippurim we say it's is fine. The fact that we have such a braita that suggests such is indicative of the fact that that principle that Ravva says is true. That going to anything that's mutar on Shabbat is mutar an Yom HaKippurim. So once we have support for Ravva's position from a brightah, from a Danaic work on that side of his position... Then we're going to say, hold that part of his position and eliminate the other side of his position, which is our Gemara here. And therefore, Rava would reverse, this, <coughs> reverse his position with regards to being the swallowing of the vinegar. And he would have to hold like a bayou. you would have to read our mission like a bayou that our mission is time at a case where he rinsed and then spit it out rather than in a case where he rinsed and swallowed. So now the Gemara continues. Amrabi Ava Barzavda Amrav Halocha Pir Rabbi The Halocha is like Rabbi Shimon in our Mishnah. The Memra Derav K'rabbi Shimon severely. So from here it sounds like Rav subscribes to the position of Rabbi Shimon. Now it's interesting here because the Mara is talking about the position of Rabbi Shimon with regards to Davar Sheino Mitkavein. By Davar Sheino Mitkavein, Rabbi Shimon says it's Mutar. What does that have to do with our Mishnah? Why would you say, just because our Mishnah says, Rabbi Shimon and the Mishnah says that, and therefore a person can anoint themselves with this rose oil because they're considered like princesses. So why should that be anything or have any correlation to Rabbi Shimon's opinion with the Avrashinu Mitkavein? So Rashi says over here, it's interesting, there are two different Gersaot in Rashi. One Gersaot in Rashi is, B'kulei Shabbat Zvirelei Rabbi Shimon. You can spend kule with a kuf, and you can spell kule with a kuf. If you spell it with a kuf, it means throughout Shabbat, Rav holds like Rabbi Shimon. So the way, if you read it that way, then basically what the Gemara is suggesting here, according to Rashi, is that Rav, if he passes like Rabbi Shimon here, he must pass him like him throughout the Dine Shabbat. So that means there's no correlation between Rabbi Shimon and our Mishnah, and Rabbi Shimon of Dabrashin and Mid-Kaven. It just happens to be that the Gemara felt that he had to be consistent in subscribing to Rabbi Shimon's position throughout Shabbat. The other, Birsin Rashi, we have a kuf. The Kula, Rabbi Shimon means, anytime Rabbi Shimon is making the Gabi Shabbat, Rab would paskin like him. So again, then, there would be no direct correlation between the Mishnah here about B'nei al and Dabr Shayinu Just happens to be, in both instances, he's the kula. Since he's the kula in both instances, Rab would paskin like him. That's Gmar's assumption. Tosafot does not like either of those explanations. And he says there must be some reason that this Mishnah has something to do with דבר שאיןו מיתכמין. And everybody says the near the Beinot Tam, the Mashmulei the Taima, the Rishimon metnitan. Sounds like from this that the Gemara thinks the Rishimon's reason in our Mishnah is Rishimon did shari דבר שאיןו מיתכמין because he thinks it's the דבר שאיןו מיתכמין. So over here, what is that? The Kama Asalei Afilu Tanug, Tanuk Rishimon zimni in the Refuah that the Tatanakama says you can't do it for pleasurable reasons because sometimes it's used for medicinal reasons. So even though you don't necessarily intend for refuah, since it's used in instances of refuah, we're going to assume that that's what you did with it here. Rebbe Shimon also is matter over here when you don't have intent for medicinal reasons. And then it works well. So Tam, which is not necessarily the Pashtut Tamishna, says, that when it comes to this Shem and Vered, it's normally used by lay people for medicinal reasons. But, there are some people, like princes, that use it for pleasurable reasons. Therefore, I came to Shabbat, and you want to use the oil. The pashtuta Mishnah is, that you can use this oil on Shabbat, because it's not obvious or necessary that it's being used for Rifua, even though you're intending it for Rifua, because other people use it in other occasions. The way the Rabbeinu Tam is reading it is, no, you're right. If you did it for medicinal reasons, you would not be able to use the Shem and Verit. The only question is, if you use it for, don't use it for medicinal reasons, use it for pleasurable reasons, then do we automatically assume that it's for medicinal reasons? Because that's what most people do with it. And even if it's Darushayn you're not intending Rufwa, we're just going to assign you that, uh, that mindset that it's for medicinal reasons. Or, is it Darushayn He doesn't intend for Rufwa, so we're not going to worry about it, even though maybe curative, maybe it's helpful, because he's doing it for pleasure. Therefore, it's mutar because of the Darvashaynumit Kavain. So Rebbe Tam tries to qualify the case in the Mishnah to come up with a case of Mit Kavain to understand why the Gemara connects the two. Ken Rashi says that there's no direct connection between the cases, simply it's the same author of positions, either because he's Makil in both cases or because it's just Rabbi Shimon in both cases. Rebbe Tam tries to create a fundamental reason why the Gemara would believe that if you he held like Rabbi Shimon in this Mishnah, you'd hold like Rabbi Shimon other places in Shabbat, the Mit Kavain is mutar. It doesn't. That's the problem. That's what the Rishonim here are trying to do. They're trying to connect. Figure out why the Gemara... Think, the Gemara makes the leap. the is saying anything Oh, know. right here. All right, okay. let's keep... Remember the Rav because the Rav Shimon really if Simi Barakia and i Rav. Hi, Miss Ruch Raita Zaita This plug, the plug of the barrel that... You're not allowed to push it in tight. I'm Yom Tov. So what is the... What's the issue with that? That is, if you drill a hole in the side of the barrel put a tap in for the wine that comes out so if you put in the tap the tap doesn't always seal properly or cleanly into the hole so what they used to do was they used to put cloth around it and then they used to push the cork in or they could put the tap in over there and then the cloth around it would help stop up or fill in the gapping between the hole and the plug so that cloth that sits there gets full of liquid it absorbs wine That's the part of the point of it there is that it's going to get caught from the wine on the inside. It's going to absorb some of that wine. When you press the plug in, when you push in the tap into that area with the cloth around it, you are going to squeeze the cloth and have the wine come out of the cloth. So that would be a problem of schita. Tosafoto here discusses what exactly the problem is. If this is a problem of schita or it's a problem of malabe. Because a different schita sometimes only applies to certain liquids... And malabin only applies to certain, uh, liquids or certain situations. So, whether it's considered to be laundering because you're trying to squeeze the liquid out and that would clean the cloth, meaning remove the liquid from the cloth, or whether this is schita because you want the liquid out of the cloth, right? Um, Toswat spends a lot of time on discussing what exactly the issue is here. But it's clear that there's a violation of Shabbat, but an unintentional violation of Shabbat. So in this instance, when you have an unintentional violation of Shabbat, you would believe Dabr Shein Kavain is Mutar, if you held like Rabbi Shimon. The Gemara is questioning how could Rav have a position. Rav Rabb Simi Rav, that over here, this is Asur and Yom Tov. Why? Because, even though it's unintentional, you're going to cause the squeezing of the wine out of this cloth. The Gemara says, I Rabbi Shimon mode. Over here, Rabbi Shimon agrees. The Rabbi Shimon agrees in a case of plus Over here, there's no way you can enter the plug, the cork, the tap, without squeezing the cloth out. It's impossible. It's not. It's a darshin of kavain. You're right. It's a Davar of kavain, but it's an inevitable outcome of using the theory and plugging the hole. And because of that, that's a problem. Even Rabbi Shimon agrees in cases of posik reishey. So because of that, we have a question. We had a question on Rav. We said Rav Paskin's like Rabbi Shimon, but even after Rabbi Shimon like Rabbi Shimon, we find a case where he seems to pass against Rabbi Shimon because it's Davar and the answer in the end is this is one of the exceptions for Rabbi Shimon which is Pasuk Reishe. even Rabbi Shimon agrees in cases of Pasuk Reishe that it is a source so that would not be a problem in terms of Rav or an inconsistency in the Psak of Rav but then the Gemara continues now we have an explicit statement from Rav that the is like Rabbi Yehuda by Dvar mit Kavain. Rav Hanan Barmi Amar Shmuel Loha ke Rabbi Shimon and Shmuel, Paz Gunzalokha like Rabbi Shimon. Rav Chiyah Ba'aven Matnila Belogavre. Chia Ba'aven says it without anybody quoting Rav and Shmuel, but Rav and Shmuel making the statement directly. Rav Amar Halokha ki Rabbi Yehuda. Shmuel Amar Halokha ki Rabbi Shimon. So you see here, the Gemara is clearly connecting between the two issues. Rav says, Allah is like Rabbi Yehuda, that Davrashayin is Azur. And Shmuel says, that Halokha is like Rabbi Shimon, that Mit mitkaven is Mutar. So Gemara says, if that's the case, that Rab passes like Rabbi Huda throughout the rest of Shabbat with Davreshenu mitkavein. How do we reconcile that with his pesach like Rabbi Shimon here? According to Rashi, it's a question of whether it's Rabbi Shimon versus Rabbi Huda, Period. You have to be consistent, or because both, if you pass like Rabbi Shimon the Kula, you should be consistent to pass like him the Kula. According to Rabbi Nuttam, our case in our Mishnah is a case of Davreshenu mitkavein, and because of that, how could you have an inconsistent pesach between these two cases? So ani, vari, targimna. I and the lion in the learning group, we explain this. Who's this lion that he's talking about? It's Rabbi Shimon, tamay. When Rab passed like Rabbi Shimon in Mishnah, he passed like Rabbi Shimon in terms of the halachic outcome, but not for the same reason that Rabbi Shimon passed him the Aloha this way. Rav has his own reason, that is not necessarily why Rabbi Shimon did it. He says Rabbi Shimon's right, but not for his reason. So where it says, May Allah Grab Shimon what does that mean? That the loch is like Rabbi Shimon not for his reason? Ilemo, Aloka Rabbi Shimon Dishari. The Aloka is like Rabbi Shimon says it's mutar, not because of his reason. Deal Rabbi Shimon Savar Masi. Because Rabbi Shimon believes that it's curative in nature. It's medicinal. Rav Savar Masi. And Rav says it's just not medicinal or curative in nature. Their loket is just about that mitziyut. They both agree that it's mutar. Rabbi Shimon agrees that it's mutar because, according to, let's go, let's go with the Rabbeinu Tam's explanation, that it's a davar she'enu mitkavein. It has curative properties, it has medicinal sides to it, but it's a davar she'enu mitkavein. On the other hand, Rav says, you're right, it's mutar, but not because it's davar dovar mitkavein, but because it's just not medicinal. It's not medicinal, there should be no restriction on Shabbat with regards to it. So I agree the loket is it's mutar, but for a completely different reason. Why says Vasovar Rav Momasi? No Do Rav really think that it's not medicinal or curative in nature? Shemin The mission is explicit that the princes use it on their wounds. If the princes are using it on their wounds, then it's clearly efficacious medicinally for wounds. And how could Rav suggest that this Shemin Verid is not curative in nature? Ella aloka ki Rabishemon Dashari Vila Mitame, this is how to explain to it that even though it's not common that people will put on Shem and Vered, nevertheless it's mutar because there is these princes that use it, that's enough to give you the ability to utilize it on Shabbat. Rabbi Sover, Rabbi says it simply has to do with the nature of the oil. If the oil is utilized on a regular basis, then you can use it on Shabbat because then it's not obvious that it's done for rifuah. If it's not utilized, except for these exceptional cases when it's used for rufwa, even though the princes use it, that would not be enough to be matir. And in Rab's city, it was common to find this type of oil, this rose oil. And therefore, since it was common to find it, it wasn't just utilized by the, by the princes. It was used by the lay people as well. So what the halacha being like Rabbi Shimon is not because It's utilized by princes. I mean, it's not because the lay people barely use it and the princes do use it, and that's enough. No, Rav says the reason that the aloches are shimon is because it's utilized by the lay people. It's a common use, an item that has common usage to it. If that's the case, then the hetzer is the same way that you use regular shaman. Shemen varied in Rav's city is no different than any other shaman that you would put on. Right, so I think I would differentiate between the cases. I think that's what ben would say here, that Shem and Verit is different than those other instances. Those other entities, the foods, are utilized by lay people. They're utilized by everyday folk. So then you can say, even if you use it for medicinal reasons, there's just no reason because it's Ochel, because it's Sh'tia, then we don't worry about it. Shem and Verit is not used by people on a regular basis. Like we we're saying here, it's something that's unusual. So to pull that out of the closet and use it, if you're specifically using it for our refuah purposes, then we're going to say... That makes sense. That's what people do with it in these cases. So then, as, say, oh, no, no, okay, well, the princess use it. That's the only reason it's mutar here, is because it's darash enumit Because it's an unusual utilization of such oil. If he simply does it for our purpose, purposes, we say, go ahead. Even though 99% of people who would use rose oil in this situation, would use it for medicinal reasons. But it's mentioned, it's mentioned no, no. Mission doesn't say. It, yeah. That, that it's talking about where you use it for non for... Correct. Because the princes use it in certain situations. Although it's a little difficult because it says the example they bring from the princess is a medicinal utilization. So that's why it's a little more difficult to say what the Reynolds says. It's not so simple. But I would differentiate between the previous Mishnah and this Mishnah with regards to Reynolds is that previous Mishnah are talking about cases of normal foods, people that, things that lay people interacted with all the time. Versus here, Shemin Verit is unusual that it's only used by princes. So here over here, if you don't have, if you have intent for Rufua, then we're gonna say you're right, and you can't use it. It's only when you diversion with kavim. we don't intend for Rufua, that's where the question arises. And I think that's why I would separate between what the Rubin says here and the other Mishnah. Alright, so now we move on. We finished uh shvatim, <clears throat> and now we move on to the Parakakosher, moving on to tying knots and untying knots on Shabbat. Right, I'm going to start here. I'm going to move for the first mishnah, and then to the second mishnah. The one that's going to ask a question, then I'll come back and explain how the rishonim view what's going on in these mishnayot. It's the a fundamental machloket of rishonim here, which has broader implications. The halacha about how they read these mishnayot, which is eluk shirim shechayvin These are the kshirim which are a asurim on Shabbat, and if you do them, you're in violation of the melacha of kosher. Kesher hagimalim, the nuts of the camels, vekesher Sapanim and the knots of the boats or the sailors. al It's a two-way street. Just like your chayav for tying knots on Shabbat, if you untie such a knot on Shabbat, you will also be chayav. Right. This brings up a broader question. I'm not going to address it today. Maybe we'll try to speak about it tomorrow. Which is, when you have melachot, which are, quote-unquote, destructive in nature... Do they have to be done specifically for a melacha like we have in the Mishnah, which is you have koreya almanat litfor, hasoter almanat livnot. In all those cases, the destructive melacha is done with the intent to create, go move towards the constructive melacha. In other cases in the Mishnah where it does not say that specifically. For instance, a kosher and a matir. When you're tying a knot and a matir, you're undoing a knot do we still have to apply the same principle, that matir, untying the knot, is only chayav if you untie the knot, in order to tie a knot? Is that the case? Or, do we say that, as long as you're untying the knot, that is the malachah, and if it's done for a constructive purpose, or for utility of some sort, that you're untying it, that'd be enough, that'd be sufficient to be chayav? So you have to ask, that's a fundamental question, that you have to ask, when it comes to these malachot, like matir, where the mission doesn't specifically specify, what's happening is an uh, important on this and maybe I'll try to speak about that tomorrow with regards to this uh, today we'll try to deal with the broader picture of kosher about the malach of kosher itself okay so now Gemara says any knot that you can undo with one hand ain't that's not considered to be a real knot if it was a real knot you wouldn't be able to undo it with one hand it would require two hands to undo the knot the fact that you can undo it with one hand is indicative of the fact that it's not a real knot. So ha ha sapanim. What is this knot? That goes on the gamal and the knot that goes on the boat. Ilema the kesher kayamo. That's not a permanent knot. The description that the gemara is assuming here is the zamam. The zamam is the nose ring of the female camel. So you have the nose ring that's placed into the female camel. And then from that nose ring, you tie a rope from the ring to wherever you want to tie the animal down. If you want to stop the animal, you tie one end of the rope to the nose ring and one end of the rope to a a rail, to something to keep them in place. The Sapanim has the same thing. The boat, at the top of the boat, the edge of the boat, they have a ring. Those rings, you tie the ring to the shoreline and you throw a rope from that, tied onto that ring and then you tie a knot on the shoreline to hold the boat in place. The Gemara now says, that rope that runs between the ring on the boat and between the ring of the nose ring of the camel, is that what you're speaking about? Is that the Kesher that you're speaking about? That's not a Kesher Shel Kayama. It's not a Kesher Shel Kayama because it's undone sometimes. You don't always leave it there. It's not permanent in nature there because it will be undone. What is the permanent Kesher? The Gemara says, The rings themselves, those are permanent. So don't think of the rings or the nose ring of the camel being a metallic ring, rather a rope. They put a rope through the nose of the camel and then they knotted it. That they will never take out. When you, un- when you unleash the camel, when you take off the rope from the camel, you don't undo the nose ring. The nose ring stays in and you undo the rope that holds the nose ring to whatever object that you tied it to. So, because of that, the nose ring. When you put that in, if you made it a rope and knotted it, that's a kesher shokayama. You'll never take that out. Same with the boat. The ring at the edge of the boat. Don't think of a metallic ring, but a rope ring. A ring there where you put it around with rope. That ring will never be removed. That's a kesher shokayama. That's the kesher that we're speaking about in our mishnah. So that's what the gemara determines. That's a kesher. That's an example of a kesher shokayama, and that's what the mishnah is speaking about. Rabbi Meir kol Kesher, by Rochod Vay. Achoi demar, either the brother demar acha, or we have other girsas so Dimmin acha that is from uh, acha. Aniva the Rabbi Meir Mahu, a bow. According to Rabbi Meir, what's the din? Tame the Rabbi Meir Mishum diacholatiro b'chatmi adafu. The reason behind Rabbi Meir's position is because you can undo it with one hand. And this too, you can undo with one hand. Odelma tame the Rabbi Meir Mishum zalami hadik. It's because it's not tight. If you can undo it with one hand, it's indicative or shows us that the knot is not tied tight. Bayan an niva, that may not be true. You may be able to tie a bow very tight. The reason you can undo it is because of the nature of the knot. It's a slip knot. That's the nature of a bow. It's a slip knot. So the reason you can pull it out with one hand is because of the way the knot was designed, not because of the lack of strength in the hold of the knot. And then, maybe he would say there... Mid it's tight and it would be a sore Takeu. the Gemara does not know in the position of Rabbi Meir whether the focus is on the ability to undo it and that's the qualification the qualification is ease of undoing it that tells you whether it's a knot or not or it has to do with the tightness of the knot is the undoing it with one hand just a siman that it's just not tied tight but if we know it's tied tight then you'll be chayabi if you to undo it with one hand like the bow or is it the sivat it's the reason and there's a difference between it being indicative or the reason that it, or is it really the reason? The reason is if you pull it one hand, it's not a knot, and that we chew by a bow as well. The Gemara leaves that as unresolved. Okay, next Mishnah. There are certain ksharim that you're not chayav midoraita on them, like the ksharim that we saw in the previous Mishnah. And then the Mishnah moves on. It says koshert isha miftah A woman can tie on the opening of her beged of her clothing, and the strings of her hair covering, and the ones around the belt, and your shoelaces, and those laces on the sandal, as well as the closures of flasks of wine and oil, Basar and the covers that go on the pots on the fire. You can put up a rope to like a gate to stop the animal from exiting. Now the Gemara is gonna ask right away that there's an inconsistency here in the Mishnah, agufakasho. Have the same problem. There are certain Ksharim that are not like the Sharim, the knots that we talked about in the first Mishnah. Which are chayav Midoraita? ha The implications of that statement in the Mishnah are that these are not Chayav Midoraita, but they're still Asur, Mi, derabanan. Vahadatani, and then the remainder of the Mishnah gives you examples of Kosher Dish Ah, Miftah Khalukah, Hafil Khathiba. That sounds like you do that, no problem. Mutar the Gamre. So why if the Mishnah start out discussing things that seem to be Patur of Alasur, then it jumps and gives you examples of things that are Mutar. So, Gemara says, This is what is meant by the Mishnah, that, Yeshk, Sharim, shein chayavim Kikesh, Ragamalim, Kikesh, Ragamalim, Kikesh, Ragamalim. There's certain knots that you're not Chayav on, like the ones mentioned in the first Mishnah. Umaynihu! What is an example of that? Kitra, the Kachre, Bizamamav, Kitra, the Kachre, Bistrida. It was the havamina in the Gemara before. The havamina of the knot. Not the nose ring, but the knot to the nose ring that you use for the leash. Not the knot of the ring on the boat, but the rope that goes from that ring to the shoreline. So that's the one that is asur mi derabanan. That's put to it's not a kesher shell kayama that, like the knot for the nose ring itself or for the boat ring itself. So, but it's a kesher that is asurmi mi derabanan. That's what the first line in the Mishnah means. Then there are those are chiyuvu deleka isreika v'yesh shimutarim lechatzila. And there's certain knots that are mutar le gamre, mainiu. And what are those? Kosher, mifteche, chaluka. That's the remainder of the Mishnah that's listed here. What the Gemara basically lines out, lays out over here, is that there are three categories of knots. There are knots that are asur, minha, torah. Knots that are considered to be kesher, shel, kayama. Asur, min torah. You can't do them. You do them on Shabbat. You're chayav, or chayav That is a violation of Shabbat. There's certain knots. They are only Asur Midrabanan, they're potur midoraita, they don't qualify to be a knot midoraita. But nevertheless, the Khimber goes there on those knots that you shouldn't do them, so they are Asur Midrabanan. There are other knots that are made on Shabbat which are Mutar the Gamri, completely mutar. That means mutar, both Midoraita and Midrabanan. There's no problem with making such knots. And we have examples of them in these three in these two Mishnayot. Mishnayot give them. The question is what's the qualification for each one of them? What's the what makes something a kesher midoraita versus a kesher midorabanan versus mutar? So Rashi has a simple explanation. He says on the Mishnah, the first Mishnah, he says she'eno matiro leolam. A kesher kayama is something that you never undo. It's a knot that is permanent. That's what it means. Kesher Kayama simply means permanent knot. The next grouping of the ones that are taken out sometimes, but are asur midorabanan. Rashi says over there that some of those times are taken out every once in a while. They're not taken out. They're there for long durations. They're not permanent, but they're there for long durations. In general, when you have the leash on the nose ring of the Gamal, you will untie it from the side that is tied to the fence. You will untie it from that side. You won't untie it from the side that's tied to the ring. But there are times where you would take it off. So that is what we consider to be, uh, and what we consider it's not khayab, because it's not permanent. It's not there all the time. But, Midrabanan is a sure because it stays there for very long durations. So, because it stays there for long durations, that's enough to be a sure midrabanan. What's Mutala chila? That is something that you do, as Rashi says, the chol yom sharile. You open and close it every day. Now, Rashi gives that as the example of something that's mutalachila. is every day, there is a machloket in the Akhunim as to how long. Rashi says one day. There are others that say if you open it up every three days, that's enough. And there are some say it has to be weekly. Uh, there's three opinions about how often does it have to be opened to considered Mutar al HaTchila. Rashi says it's a 24-hour stance. You have to open up within 24 hours. Otherwise, that's not considered to be Mutar Lech It's something that's open and closed on a regular basis. Others say that the window is three days. Others say that the window is seven days. That is Rashi's opinion. There are others who say that it has not to do with whether... when How? Rashi just says it's a practical issue. Do you leave it there permanently or don't leave it there permanently? There are others The Mordechai brings from aim that it has to do with your intent. If you intend to leave it there permanently, that is a Kesha Shul Kayima. If you intend to remove it after a long duration, that's also Midi Rabbanan. You intend to remove it right away, that is Mutar Lechad It's very similar to Rashi, it's just that it has to do with your intent rather than what practically happened. But that's the Shita of those we show name. Those that argue on them, the Rif and the Rambam. The Rif and the Rambam say that what Rashi says is incorrect, but rather there are two qualifications to know whether or not is both Keshush and or Mutodach And that is, it has to be both Keshush Kayama has to be something that's permanent and it has to be done by a professional. It has to be a professional knot that is left permanently. That's what makes it a Keshush And the opposite will be true to be Mutodach In order for it to be Mutodach it has to be a knot that's not permanent and not done by a professional. It has to be done by a lay person not be permanent. And now what's going to be also the Rabbanan? Is you have one or the other. You have a professional knot that's not permanent, or you have a permanent knot that's done by a person. those will be Assur me the Rabbanan. And that's the Shita of the Rif and the Rambam. So of course, the Shulchan Aruch is going to pass in like the Rif and the Rambam, because you already have two of his three determinants usually for what the Aloha is. So the Shulchan Aruch brings down the Aloha like the Rif and the Rambam. The Ramah over there comments that according to Rashi, that it would be mutar, if you simply just open it up every day, whether it was a professional or not, professional or not, the Rashi ignores this issue of professionalism. So even though we could be the, we could be mechil like Rashi, nevertheless we are choshesh vashita tarif in the Rambam, unless there's some necessity where we have to be some and Rashi. Rambam also brings down the possibility of what it means to be opened on a regular basis. Does it being opened on a regular basis mean every day like Rashi? Or does it mean uh, those other periods of time of three or seven? So in general, we're choshesh for all the shitot. We try to be choshesh for the shitot, which means that we only put on knots that are opened on a regular basis, like when you tie your shoe, something that you open and close within a 24-hour period on a regular basis, and something that's not a professional knot. So those are the things that we are matir to use on Shabbat. Again, where you need to be somech rashi, then if it's, not a, if it's simply a knot that's open and closed, even though it might be a professional knot, there is room to be mechial, uh, at least according to the Ashkenazim, because of the, what the Ramah mentions. Okay, we'll stop over here.